Good morning. Let's stand together as we worship the Lord through song. Singing out a great hymn, anthem, praise him, praise him. Let's sing this out together. Praise him, praise him, Jesus our blessed And welcome to First Baptist Church of Wixom. Thanks for joining us for worship today. Here are a few upcoming events to help you stay connected. On Thursday, February 15, we are offering a free Kids Night In here at the church. You can drop your kids off at 5 p.m. We will provide pizza and a lot of fun for your children. Please pick them up no later than 8 p.m. as it is a school night. This is only for children 6th grade and younger, and families must sign up in the link by Sunday, February 11. If you have completed CPP training and are interested in volunteering, please see Angela Victory. We will be having a night of worship here in the auditorium on this Saturday, February 10th at 6 p.m. This time has been set aside to enjoy some great songs of worship and reflect on God's goodness together. Make plans now to be part of Worship Night at FBC. Our quarterly member meeting is today after the morning worship gathering. Please plan to stay for this encouraging and informative meeting. More information is available in the link. Community groups continue tonight at 5 p.m. This is a time change from our normal 6 p.m. schedule, and we will continue for tonight and next Sunday. If you are not yet connected with a Sunday p.m. community group, please visit fbcwixom.org forward slash community groups for more information. 
In just a few minutes, we will be dismissing children four years through the third grade at the back of the auditorium to our junior church ministry. While there, they will enjoy a great time as they sing songs, play games, and hear a message from God's Word prepared just for them. The ministry of First Baptist Church is funded entirely by the voluntary gifts of God's people. This is an important part of our worship as we unite together in a tangible way to advance the priorities of Jesus in our community and beyond. If you would like to participate in worship by giving, please utilize the giving box in the back of the auditorium. Request a weekly gift to be sent directly from your bank to the church office, or you can give online at fbcwixom.org and click on the giving tab at the top of the page. Thank you for partnering together with the rest of the church to advance the cause of Christ. If this is your first time at FBC, we would love to connect with you. If you'd like more information about FBC, prayer, or to learn how you can get involved, you can fill out a connections card online at fbcwixom.org forward slash connect. Also, make sure to stop by the Welcome Center for a special gift on your way out after the service. Once again, thank you for joining us for worship today. Now we invite you to worship the Lord through song as we prepare to hear from God's word this morning. Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. If you're a guest, we want to extend a warm welcome to you as well. Uh, I just have one item that I'd like to highlight this morning, and that is in conjunction with Operation Christmas Child. Now, perhaps you're wondering why we're talking about that in February, uh, but I have two updates for you. Uh, one is where our boxes went as a church this year. So all the boxes we gathered up were sent to six different countries around the world. One of those countries is unspecified because it is a dangerous area that uh, we can't mention the name of. But the other five went to Haiti, Honduras, Ecuador, Colombia, and Peru. So we thank you for your generous giving this year through Operation Christmas Child. And we want to give you a little bit of an update on where those boxes went. Now, coming into this next year, again, we plan to gather up some boxes, and uh, perhaps we want to extend a different opportunity for you to be involved in Operation Christmas Child this year. So throughout the, uh, the calendar year, in various months, we are going to highlight particular items that you can gather up and bring and donate here uh, at church. If you look on the, uh, the table that has been set up just across from the coffee station, you will find one of these uh, little flyers. And this has information pertaining to individual items that you can gather up in the realm of personal care and some items that you can gather up. So please uh, pick up one of those little leaflets this morning. Um, I did have a notice on the screen. I'm not sure if we have that at the back. Okay. Um, But throughout the next several months, we are going to have different things. So February, we're going to gather up personal care items. April, we will gather up some clothing. Uh, June, we will gather up small toys. And then in August, it will be school and supplies. And essentially what we want to do is we want to gather up these different kinds of items Throughout the year, if you can donate them in the box here at church. And then in the fall, we plan to have a packing party where we bring all those items together and build a number of boxes. If you have any more, uh, if you have any questions or would like any more information about this, please see Angie Snyder, who's here this morning. Angie, can you give us a little wave? All right, please see Angie this morning or Brian Wright or Emily Shung.
Let's pray this morning as we begin our service. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the opportunity to be here this morning. Lord, we thank you that we can gather in your house, that we are free to um, study your word and worship you. And Lord, we pray as we do those things this morning that your name would be glorified, that you would be lifted up, and Lord, that we would become better followers of you. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through your word, and Lord, that you would teach us how to be a better disciple of you and help others as they follow you as well. In Jesus' name, amen. As we think through the truths of the word this morning, we're going to be focusing on Jesus calling disciples. And I think we all have a very good understanding. If you've been here for any amount of time, you know that our church ministry is really big on discipleship. And rightly so, because Scripture is really big on discipleship. And I love what we're going to be talking about today. It's Jesus calling disciples, just like he calls you and I, to follow him. And as we sing through our songs today, I want us to think through that theme of focusing on following the calling of Jesus. Let's stand together. Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. is hearing the instruction of Jesus and, and then doing just that, following him. And so I love songs that really emphasize this prayer. When the Lord speaks, I want to hear it. I don't only want to hear it. Lord, help me to do it. Help me to accomplish your will in my life. So let this be our prayer this morning as we prepare to hear from God's word. Speak, O Lord, your servant hears. Oh, Lord. 
devoted. We follow after the one who gave it all. Christ alone be praised, fully devoted. We follow after the one who gave it all. Christ alone, Christ alone be today. Please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, if you would, please. Matthew chapter 4. We've been following Jesus chronologically through the Gospels, following his life and his ministry. I'm grateful for the messages we've heard over the last couple of weeks 
from Holden and Johnny. I was thinking last week as I was hearing Johnny preach about the woman on the well, those two messages really describe a lot of people at First Baptist Church. If not currently that those people, at one time we were those people. You think about Holden's message on Nicodemus. Nicodemus was who we might call a well-born religious seeker who was suspecting that there was more to the story, that the main point might be getting buried below religion. Nicodemus suspected that. He came to Jesus and he asked him questions, getting after that point. Jesus, is there more to the story? And and Jesus then went on to explain, you must be born again. You can be God-fearing, you can be church-attending, but not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And this is the message that Jesus has for Nicodemus. Just because you're in the right place with the right person, um, asking the right questions, doesn't mean you're quite there yet, Nicodemus. You must start a personal relationship with me, with Jesus, by being born again. And then last week we heard about a different kind of person, a a woman at the well who was a well-known sinner. For her, it wasn't just her, she knew she was a well-known sinner, but to others, they knew she was a sinner as well. And she was wondering, is there any hope? I'm keenly aware of my sin. I know it's out of control. I don't really want it, but it's my current reality. And she suspected that Jesus might be the answer. I think there are folks like that, too. If that's you at First Baptist Church, if you're the religious one who wonders if the truth is getting hidden below religion, or maybe you're the one who's struggling with sin and you're wondering, is there hope in Jesus Christ? Can I just tell you that he is the answer? Jesus is the answer for both questions and both types of people. Today in our scripture, we're going to see Jesus interact with a third group of people and these are just average people normal everyday hard-working family men and women today's message is the disciple maker jesus is assembling his closest followers and there's some really great lessons for us so would you pray with me as we begin today father we're so thankful for your word and we're thankful for your truth And now today, as we open it, Lord, we ask for what our song just recently asked for, that you would speak to us, Lord. Would you feed us with your word? Jesus is the one who said that we can't live by food or bread alone, but we only live by the very words of God. And that a wise man, a wise woman will hear those words and will do them. Would you convict us and teach us and help us as we go to your word today? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm intrigued a little bit by uh, the English language and the fact that we sometimes take some things for granted. I never had to learn English other than as an infant and as a toddler. Uh, But if you had to learn it, this might be confusing. This sentence, they're going to put their things over there. Those words all sound identical. They're spelled different and they mean totally different things. And if you think about it, this actually happens quite a bit in English language, right? Here's some other examples. I shed a tear over the tear in my shirt. Get the bat and kill that bat. I can't bear to feed that bear. This is our hour. I need to knead the bread. You can read them for yourself. But those are are confusing, right? I mean, if you were learning English, that would be a little bit confusing. 
And if you're learning Christianity, if you're learning church life, there's a word that might be a little bit confusing, and it is that word, disciple. What does it mean to be a disciple? In general, the word disciple means follower or student. But we actually, in church life, we use it in all different kinds of contexts, right? Uh, Sometimes we're talking about the twelve also known as the apostles. These were the special disciples, the close followers of Jesus. Sometimes all of the followers of Jesus in the Gospels are called disciples. All followers of all time, including you and me, if you're a believer, are referred to as disciples. And yet here at First Baptist Church, we complicate it even more, and we talk about discipleship as something that we do as an activity, as an arranged relationship with somebody to talk about spiritual things. And so it can be a little bit confusing. I'm hoping that today we can shed light on it. As we look at Jesus calling his disciples, it will shed some light on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So I want to share with you just two very simple points today, and they are these. Number one, that Jesus calls and uses regular people. Aren't you glad about that? Just normal, everyday, average people. These are the kind of people that Jesus calls. Now, if you're in Matthew chapter 4 with me, starting in verse number 18, here's what scripture says. And Jesus, walking by the sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. Now, the sea is the Sea of Galilee, which we'll look at in just a little bit. This is Lake Tiberias. It's actually, we wouldn't call it a sea. It's just seven and a half miles by 13 miles. It's a fairly good-sized lake. And this lake is known for having quality fishing. So here's Simon and Andrew, his brother. They're fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And he says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw Other two brethren, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a ship with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. So here's what we want to see is that these are just average, blue-collar, hardworking guys. These are the guys that Jesus calls as his closest followers. We see the same account in Mark chapter 1 and Luke chapter 5. In John chapter 1, we actually see an earlier encounter with these men. They're hanging out listening to John the Baptist preach. And this is where John the Baptist says of Jesus, look, there goes the Messiah. That's the one that you actually want to follow. That happens in John chapter 1. But here's what I want you to see. That Simon Peter is a fisherman from Bethsaida, Galilee. If you can throw that map up there for us, Jim, just to look at this. You know, Galilee is the north region of Israel. You can see Bethsaida there on the north side of the lake, the Sea of Galilee. You can see Nazareth down here where Jesus is from, Cana where the wedding was at. There's Bethsaida. It's maybe eight or nine miles away, a good day's walk from those locations. So Peter's from there. His brother Andrew, obviously, also from Bethsaida. James and John from the Galilee region. Philip, we learn in John chapter 1, is also from Bethsaida, which probably means he was also a fisherman or some kind of blue-collar worker, maybe a farmer. And we see Nathaniel, also known as Bartholomew, he was from Cana, which you see on the map. Matthew is probably from Capernaum. There's a little bit of question about where he's from. Remember, he's a tax collector. Thomas, unknown where he comes from. James, the other Simon, 
Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot. These disciples, we don't even know where they're from. We don't know anything about their families. But here's what I want you to see, is that God had an incredibly high calling for these men. They were fishermen. One of them was a zealot. Uh, one of them was like a, like a political activist. That's what he was known for. One of them was a tax collector who the Jews considered the worst of the sinners. These are the guys we're talking about. And yet, God has an incredibly high calling for them. Think about what the plan was for these men. They were going to create the foundation of the church. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. These guys were the foundation of the church, number one. Number two, they were the foundation of Christian doctrine, Acts 2, 41 to 43. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. So think again who these apostles are. They're just common people. They're just fishermen that Jesus has called to spend time with him, and yet he's going to form Christian doctrine on their teaching and the foundation of the church through them this is the one that is most remarkable, though, that they actually have their names on the foundation of the new Jerusalem. Think about that. I mean, think no wonder the religious leaders in Jesus day were unimpressed with Jesus and his disciples because of the claims that Jesus made on these men. Revelation chapter 21 and verse number 14, the wall of the city had 12 foundations and in them the name of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. I mean, God was going to do some remarkably special things with these men. But what I want you to see today is that they were just regular people, submitted to the Father's will and spending time with Jesus. Now think about this for just a second. If, if you were God and you wanted to change the entire world and you wanted to assemble, assemble a team to do it, where would you go to pick them? Think about it in our modern context, in our world. Where would you go? Would you go to Ivy League schools? Maybe not that. Would you go to like a, an institution of higher learning that is like well-regarded nationally? Would you go to the smartest and best engineers? Would you go to the greatest CEOs? Like who would you assemble if you could put together 12 people to change the world? Jesus goes to fishermen. Jesus goes to common people, a bunch of guys from unknown families. Did you know that God always works this way, though? He always works this way. Second Corinthians 4, 7, Paul says, We have this treasure, speaking of the gospel, in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. You might say, well, in my context, in my church, you know, my Sunday school teacher is not that impressive. My pastor is not that impressive. My worship leader is not that impressive. Good. That's exactly who God likes to use. This is when God gets the glory, when average people bring the gospel for others to feed on and to elevate Jesus. That's when he gets the most glory. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things that are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and the things which are not 
To bring to naught things that are. Why? That no flesh should glory in his presence. I want to remind you that God uses regular people. If you say, well, I'm just a regular Joe. I, I don't know. Does God have something special for me? Just telling you that submitting to his will will result in him using your life to do something special. Matthew chapter 1. Remember in Matthew chapter 1, we see the genealogy of Jesus. Let me just remind you of the genealogy of Jesus, the God-man, God in the flesh. What family does he come from? Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham, pause there for just a second. If you don't know the story of Abraham, he was a pagan when God called him. He begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob. Jacob, the trickster, the guy with two wives and two pretend wives, whose family was a complete disaster. And Jacob begat Judah and his brethren, and Judah begat Perez and Zerah of Tamar. Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law who dressed up like a prostitute and seduced Judah, her father-in-law, into fathering her children. It's like a soap opera. And Perez begat Ezra, and Ezra begat Aram, and Aram begat Abinadab, and Abinadab begat Naasan, and Naasan begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab. Rahab was an actual prostitute. And Boaz begat Obed of Ruth. Ruth wasn't even an Israelite. And Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. Why? Well, because he had killed Uriah after he had had an affair with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. And Solomon begat Rehoboam. And in verse number 16, And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. You see this incredible list of people. If you were God and you wanted your son to be born into a family, what kind of family would you choose? This is the family Jesus got. You might say, well, I want to be a faithful disciple of Jesus. I want him to do something special with me, but my family's a mess. Perfect. That's just the kind of person that God wants to use. What I want to remind you this morning is I don't think we should embrace our sinfulness or cheer on our sinfulness. But what I want you to realize is that God uses sinners. Amen. And in fact, the disciples brought God glory because they were sinners. They were individual messes. Even at the very end of Jesus' ministry, he's been working with these guys for three years. They literally do everything together. They hear everything he says. They watch all of his miracles. And in Matthew chapter 28, it says that the 11 disciples, these are the close ones, the 12 minus Judas, went away into Galilee into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some did what? They doubted. They doubted. These guys doubted. They'd seen it all. But they were weak faith followers of Jesus who didn't know how to pray, who had a hard time forgiving, who were dealing with their own pride. These guys had issues. They had baggage. They had stuff. And even after three years, they still doubted Jesus. They worshipped him, but they doubted. Now, there's a really great lesson in this passage, because if you know the rest of the passage, it goes on to say that Jesus came and spake to them and said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. 
What was Jesus saying? It's okay that your faith is weak. It's okay that you've got some baggage. It's okay that your life is a bit of a mess. Put your eyes on me. You see, discipleship is not about the followers. Discipleship is about the one they're following. It's about Jesus. He says, I want you sinners, weak faith men, to follow me. This is the kind of person that Jesus loves to use. Secondly, I want you to see that Jesus expects his disciples to make other disciples. Jesus expects his disciples to make other disciples. Back in Matthew chapter 4, verse number 19, he said, Follow me, and I will do what? I will make you fishers of men. I will make you, starting with where you are right now, you dirty fishermen, you plain-clothed, blue-collar, average guy, I'm going to make you into fishers of men, kingdom builders, disciple makers. You might say, well, I'm not trained to make a disciple. That's okay. Jesus says, I want to train you. I'm not a Bible college grad. Okay, that's fine. Jesus says, I will take you from where you're at. I don't have a clever strategy. I'm not a salesman. Good. You don't need those things. Last week, Johnny reminded us that if you know that Jesus is the source of living water, you know enough. Just invite other people to come to him. But maybe you ask a question. Okay, so how did, how did these guys do it? Like, they were just average, uneducated, pride-filled, weak-faithed, prayerless followers of Jesus. Like, how did God use them? Well, in John chapter 1, we have an interesting discussion about the very beginning of Jesus' relationship with some of these men. In John chapter 1, verse number 35, it says this, again, the next day after John the Baptist stood and two of his disciples, listen to the story, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. They left John the Baptist and they followed Jesus Christ. Then Jesus turned and saw them following and said unto them, What seek you? Or what are you looking for? And they said unto him, Rabbi, which is being interpreted master, where do you live? And he said unto them, Come and see. They came and they saw where he dwelled and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. So Jesus does what good employees at box stores are told to do and not just give you a landmark or directions or aisle 42, but he says, why don't you come with me and I'll show you exactly where I live. You say, well, that doesn't seem very significant. Is that an important part of the story? I think it is. Because listen to what happens in the next verse. Jesus has just said, come and see. John 1, verse 40, one of the two which heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon. Remember, this happens earlier than the the story we read at the beginning of them at their ship, at their boat. This happens earlier. He finds his brother Simon and says to him, we have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ, and he brought Simon to Jesus. The day following, Jesus would go forth, this is verse 43, into Galilee, and he finds Philip and says unto him, follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip finds Nathanael and says unto him, we found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. 
And, and Nathaniel says unto him, can there be any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip says unto him, come and see. I'll show you. I want to introduce you to him. So here's the early disciples. They, they are following Jesus. Jesus says, what do you want? They says, where do you live? Jesus says, come on, I'll show you. And they hang out together for that day. Then Jesus starts to call other disciples. And as they tell their friends, their friends show some skepticism. And what do they say? Hey, I'm going to follow the example of Jesus and tell you what he told us. Just come see. Come check him out. Because when you hear Jesus and you get to know Jesus, no doubt you're going to love Jesus as much as we do. And you're going to realize who he is. This is the invitation to make other disciples. Come and see. As I was listening last Sunday morning to the sermon, Johnny read John 4, verse 29. And the woman, remember when she was excited to realize that this was Messiah? She went back into the city, it says, and she tells everybody she could find, Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? you got to come check him out for yourself. By the way, this is the same invitation we should be using. Hey, come see Jesus. Can I just remind you, church, that in evangelism, in making other disciples, we are not selling anything. We're not trying to argue that we are right. We are not trying to make more Baptists. We're inviting people to come see Jesus. Can you say those words with me? Come see Jesus. This is what we're doing. We're inviting people to come see Jesus. And, and by the way, this is a good place to come see Jesus, but this isn't the best place to come see Jesus. Did you know that? This isn't it. The best place to come see Jesus is in your life, is a personal sermon, a one-on-one confrontation where you say, hey, this is my friend Jesus. He is my savior. He's my master. He's changed my life. Can I introduce you to him? Can I just tell you a little bit about him? And by the way, why don't you come with us and worship him with our church? Come see Jesus. The church, this is not an event. The church is not a place. The church is a family with God as the father and Jesus as the head. And what we're called to do is to invite people to come and see him and follow him alongside of us. You know, the gospel, the story of Jesus is beautiful. And it is good. And it is something that we should be sharing with those we love. We need to live it, speak it, invite others to it. Graciously and humbly invite them to the well. Pastor John MacArthur tells the following story from the Presbyterian Journal. Would you listen as I read? He says this, on a dangerous seacoast Where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat, but the few devoted members of the life-saving station kept a constant watch over the sea and with no thought for themselves went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. Many lives were saved by this wonderful little life-saving station, so it became famous. Some some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to become associated with the station and give of their time and their money and their effort for the support of its work. New boats were acquired and new life-saving crews were trained and the little life-saving station grew. Some of the members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. 
So they replaced the emergency cots and beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members and they decorated it beautifully and furnished it exquisitely because they used it as sort of a club. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions. So they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decorations and there was a liturgical lifeboat in the room where the club held its initiations. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast and the hired crews brought in loads of cold, wet, half-drowned, starving people. They were dirty and sick and some of them had different skin color than the current members. The beautiful new club was considered a me- or considerably messed up. So the property committee immediately had a, sh- a shower house built outside the club where the victims of the shipwrecks could get cleaned up before they came inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Some members insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told if they wanted to save the lives of various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast a little ways, which they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that occurred in the old one, It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that coast today, you'll find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most of the people drowned. I hope you can see that's a really sad metaphor for an unhealthy church. A church that has forgotten That our mission, our commission, what the Lord has us here to do is to reach the unsaved and invite them to Jesus. You say, well, they tend to reject the message. That's okay. They're rejecting Jesus. They're not rejecting you. We're to continue to tell them. We're to continue to invite them. We're to continue to help them see the life-changing power of the gospel. You see, disciple-making is what you might call a top-button issue. I don't know if ladies ever struggle with this, but guys do often getting dressed in the dark and you button your shirt and you get all the way down to the bottom and you realize you got them out of order. Anybody like that? And you're like, what happened to that tail? Something's wrong. And you go back up and you realize that you started wrong. If you get the first one right, it's much more likely that as you go down, you'll get the rest of them right. Top button issue. And can I just tell you that a church that doesn't get disciple making right messes up everything else? But a church that gets disciple-making right, that says, look, our whole purpose is to call people to follow Jesus and as they follow Jesus, to cheer them on and to encourage them and to promote the priorities of Jesus in their life. When we get that right, everything else is right. All of the other priorities fall right into place. So I want to give you a couple of conclusions. Three questions as we conclude Since Jesus calls and uses regular people as disciples, how are you following? Since Jesus calls and uses regular people as disciples, how are you following? You might say, well, I'm not anything special. I'm just a regular, blue-collar, middle-class, weak-faithed sinner. My extended family is kind of a mess My personal background is not so great. I just want to remind you that Jesus says, that's fine. Those are the kinds of people I like to use. 
The question is, are you following? How are you following Jesus? If someone tried to convict you of being a disciple of Jesus, would there be enough evidence that you're actually a disciple? Can I remind you what qualified the 12? Have you ever wondered that? Like, what makes these guys special? Why did Jesus identify them as the ones that he wanted to be his inner circle? What was it about them? Let me give you just four things. I think there's some lessons for us in these things. Number one, they trusted him. John 6, 68, Jesus has just preached a really hard sermon, and it was super unpopular with the congregation, the crowd. Nobody liked it. (laughs) And everybody left. And so Jesus gathers his 12 disciples together and he says, are you guys going to leave too? And and, and Peter says to Jesus, where would we go? You are the only one with the words of life. We trust you. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked the disciples again, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answering for the rest of the disciples says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Discipleship starts with trust, with belief. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus unless you are saved. And this is super important because you might come away from this morning's message. You might say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to be part of what he's doing. But you've never put your faith in him. You've never trusted him for your eternal salvation, for the forgiveness from your sins. It begins with trust. But secondly, these guys were trying to be like him. They copied him. His miracles, they wanted to do them just like Jesus. His teaching, they wanted to do it just like him. His way of life, they wanted to follow him. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28 in the Great Commission. He says, teach everyone to observe all things that I've taught you. Follow me. Do what I do. Jesus says, take on my example. So they trusted him. They tried to be like him. Thirdly, they traded their life for his plans. They traded their life. They laid down their nets. In our story in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus says, follow me. They laid their nets down and said, see you later, guys. We're going to go on a different career, a different path. Matthew, you might remember the story of the calling of Matthew or Levi. He's actually sitting there at his desk doing his work as a tax collector. And Jesus comes and says, Matthew, I want you to follow me. And he just leaves it. And walks away the trade-off. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus said, Everyone that has forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus says this, Whosoever will come after me as a disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus says, trade it. Trade your life for my mission. Give it up. Give up your plans. Give up your priorities for my priorities. But what qualified them most, I think, was time. They spent time with Jesus. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, it's interesting. The religious leaders see Peter and John, and they know these guys are just fishermen. But they're preaching, and thousands of people are coming to them, and people are getting saved, and their lives are changing And it says when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, the religious leaders thought they were just dummies. They marveled 
And they took note that they had been, do you know what the next two words are? With Jesus. The religious leaders, it's like they were huddling together and saying, what do we, how can we account for this? Like, what happened? How are these guys doing this? And the only thing they could come up with was, well, what's, what they have in common is that these guys spent some time with Jesus. That must be what makes them so effective as disciple makers. So, are you doing this? Are you following Jesus by spending time with him? Second question, since Jesus expects his disciples to make other disciples, how are you disciple making? Healthy Christians are doing both macro disciple making and micro disciple making. That's not really a scriptural term, but I think it's true of healthy Christians and healthy churches And that is this, that every believer who takes following Jesus seriously says, okay, what can I do to encourage believers in general to serve the church, to do something to strengthen the church? What can I do to encourage believers? That's macro disciple making. But but healthy Christians also ask the question, what can I do to encourage a believer? Like, who can I cheer on in their walk with Jesus Christ? Who can I walk beside? Who can I help hold accountable? Who can I do like Paul did in in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, where he said, Be followers of me, even as I also am a follower of Christ. Who can I pull along towards Jesus? How are you disciple-making? And then lastly, since our church creates a framework for discipleship relationships. Can I just ask you, how are you involved? Are you involved? I just want to remind you, this is not a a Pastor Stilley or a First Baptist Church phenomenon. This is the command of Jesus. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. I will teach you how to make other followers. So are you doing this? Are you involved? You might say, well, discipleship is really not my thing. Like I told you recently, somebody said to me, it's not all about discipleship, Brad. And I said, you've got to read the Gospels because it is. It's all about discipleship. Everything hangs from discipleship. This is the top button issue for the church. You've got to get this one right. We say in our discipleship class here that our goal is to create a culture at First Baptist Church where it is normative or it creates an expectation for people to meet one-on-one to biblically promote Jesus and his kingdom in one another. Our goal is that at First Baptist Church, if you see two people standing in a random spot with a Bible open, reading scripture, or quoting scripture to each other, or praying over one another, that you would say, okay, that's just normal. That's just life at First Baptist Church. That's not weird. It just happens, right? What are people doing? They're promoting the priorities of Jesus in one another. And to do this, We provide teaching in a Sunday school class. We provide time on the calendar. We encourage you to do discipleship any time other than this hour every week. We reserve this one as sacred. But any other time, Wednesday nights, Sunday morning during Sunday school, during the week, to encourage one another spiritually. We provide free resources, the blue shelves out in the link. All of those are full of discipleship resources. And we provide support for those who are going through a difficult time in their discipleship relationship, the pastors provide support. The question is this, how are you involved? Everyone should be. I read a story this week about a man named Luigi Tercio. And Luigi was found dead one morning in his house, 
with scarcely a worldly comfort at all. But stashed in his little tiny house were 246 exquisite violins, which he had been collecting all of his life. 246. Luigi, in his great devotion to violins and to music, had robbed the world of their music. The whole time he was hoarding them for himself, no one else heard them play. In fact, the greatest Stradivarius violin ever made was first played when it was 147 years old. Can you believe that? 147 years old. Why? Because somebody had stashed it away. They wanted to keep it for themselves. How many Christians do this? We love the Word of God. We love the Gospel. Man, this has changed my life. I'm going to stash it away. I'm going to keep it for myself. I'm not going to share it with my circle of influence. I'm not going to share it with my community. I'm not going to share it with those around me. I'm not going to bring another person to Jesus. But this is our job. It's our calling as Christians. How are you involved? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the great example of Jesus. The patient, forgiving, loving disciple maker. We look at his example today and we... We want to be like that. We want to be bold and we want to be gracious and we want to invite others to follow Jesus. And yet, tomorrow, when we go into our weekday, no doubt fear will creep in and we'll be afraid to share Jesus. I pray that you give us courage and boldness to be faithful disciple makers, to be like your closest followers, just regular people, who spend time with you and faithfully share you with others. May that be the testimony of this church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand together as we close with song this morning. Focusing on this truth that Paul reminds us of, anything that we can do in this life, it is only through the power of Christ. Yet not I, but through Christ in me.
most important thing our church can communicate with you is the gospel message. The word gospel means good news. The trouble with most good news is that it isn't really good until you see it relative to bad news. The discovery of a new cure isn't all that helpful unless you or a loved one has the disease that it cures. In the same way, the good news of Jesus is good when it is understood in relation to the bad news of our own sin. We are all sinners. That's the disease we are all born with. And Jesus is the cure. The good news that everyone can live forever with God in heaven, not because of anything we can do, but because of what Jesus did in our place. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrated his love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The truth that everyone, everywhere, at all times in history needs to hear is that salvation is only possible by putting our faith in Jesus Christ alone. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Would you put your faith in Jesus Christ today? Would you be willing to pray something like this and mean what you pray from your heart? Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I know I can do nothing to earn forgiveness and make myself right with you. Instead of dying for my own sins, I want to trust Christ and his death on the cross as payment for my sins. I want to repent from doing things my way and make Jesus Christ the Lord of my life. The Bible tells us that those that repent from their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in this way shall be saved. Would you believe on him today? And if you did trust Christ today, if you did pray a prayer like the one suggested a moment ago and you really meant it, would you let us know? We want to help you grow in your understanding of the good news of Jesus Christ. Maybe you have more questions about putting your faith in Christ and we have great resources to help you with that. The Exchange Bible Study is a four-week study on the character of God that will answer most of your questions about the gospel. We have men and women ready and waiting to go through that with you in person or virtually, depending on your situation. Maybe you put your faith in Christ today, or, or maybe you did years ago, but you feel like you've not grown in your faith. We want to help you with that as well. We have literally hundreds of helpful resources and dozens of believers ready to walk with you through them. Let us know how we can best encourage your journey of faith in Christ using one of the contact methods listed below. Jesus Christ loves you and wants to spend eternity with you. May God bless you as you seek to live your life for his honor and for his glory.